If you have your Bible, you want to turn. We're going to be in two passages this morning. Uh, Exodus 32 and Romans 1. Exodus 32 and Romans chapter 1. Um, so we're in, this is the last, uh, last message in our series called Calibrate, uh, where we're really realigning and being reminded of um, who we are as a people, who, we're, who we are as a church, um, the values that we hold as a church under truth and people and God. And so today we're going to look at God. Um, but, but I want to kind of recap, um, before we kind of finalize this and, and finish this out, um, I want to recap the, really the last several things that we've, we've done. Um, so the first one was truth. Um, and I've kind of, uh, I've kind of always leaned to this, this phrase, um, just in my mind, uh, I'm kind of a I'm kind of a nerd in my thinking and perfectionist in in how I try to see things and how I try to explain things. I want it to make sense, and I want and so in my mind and trying to organize and think through how do we put together the truth and people and God. Here's kind of what I've what I've come up with personally. Uh, Coop, put that uh, fire that up on the screen. Uh, truth of the gospel to reach all people for the glory of God. Um, the, the foundation, what we started off with, was a picture of truth. What, is it, what does it mean that the gospel actually informs who we are as a people, that we're loved and rescued by a holy, perfect God? And that that gospel would literally be the foundation that we set as a people, that we would be honest. That's one of the things I try to teach my kids all the time. They don't have to run and hide about where they're at or about what they're doing. That they can be truthful. Because you don't have to be scared to go to God. Maybe you came to the, into the door this morning and there was this sense of trepidation. And here's what I'll say. like God's holy and God's perfect. God offers forgiveness and grace when we go to Him. That's the truth of the gospel. And our, our desire as a people, as a church, is that that would reach us and all people everywhere, right? I mean, like, think about this week we will celebrate eight years as a church. And for those of you that have been around a while, like, think about what God's done in that eight years. Think about, like, the, like, I don't, I cannot not even imagine where I would be as a man if, if God didn't change my perspective of him in the, like the last eight years have changed my life because I've come to see the gospel in a way that I've never seen it before. I've come to know God in a way I've never known him before. Like, can some of you testify to that in the past eight years, what God's done? Like, I'm looking at faces, I'm being reminded of Stories and journeys and what God's done and what God's doing. We want that to reach people, right? We want that to go out these doors and transform our community and our world. Why? So that people could point back and look, be like, look at North Church. No. For the glory of God. Because it's about Him. Because He's amazing. Like He is amazing. Um, if you were here last week, if you weren't, I would encourage you to check out the podcast. But if you were here last week, you saw 
just the amazingness of God in creation, right? I mean, Rick walked through all these different scenarios of here's who God is and how great he is and how big he is and how perfect he is. And today we're going to continue to dive into that as we think about that. Listen, our heart, my heart, we don't want to build this sexy church that's like, look at, look at us and look at how we do things or look at one of our vision statements is that we want to be a church that draws attention to God. Like, think about that. What, what do you think that entails? What does that entail? That everything we do would bubble up somehow and point to who he is and how good he is and how worthy he is. That's our heart and that's our desire. Romans eleven thirty six says, puts it this way, for, for from him and through him and to him are all things, all things. To him be glory forever. And like just being here today, does your heart like do you think about who the Lord is? Do you think about what He's done for you? Man, maybe you don't know what He's done for you. My prayer is that as we walk through this this morning, that we would see what God's done. We'd be reminded of what God has done, and that God would stir our affections. But even as we're we're going to walk through, um, so if you're not in Exodus 32, go ahead and turn there, because we're going to see in Exodus 32. A picture of our own hearts that we don't worship him for who he is, right? We don't give him the glory that he deserves. We don't run to him and give him the praise that he's worth. Why? Because we found other things that we think bring greater joy and that we turn our affections to, right? God becomes this, this like buddy, right? We compartmentalize him. But as God's people, we're to see God really trickle down into every area of our lives. So we don't worship him as, as, he's, as he's due. Um, the Bible calls it idolatry. So Exodus 32. So basically, here's what's going on. Let me give you some background before we start reading. Um, the people have just recently been rescued from the oppression of the Egyptians. They've been rescued from Egypt and the slavery they encountered. And God is with Moses and he's establishing the Ten Commandments. He's established the Ten Commandments and he's actually putting them on tablets and Moses is going to bring them down from the mountain. If you're familiar with this story, some of that might ring a bell. But here's what God's doing. Um, Really, in this text and in all of the Bible, God's showing, here's how I've designed life to work. So all of God's commands and all of his instructions are literally him wooing us into his good design. And picture like, like a man wooing a woman. Or a woman wooing, like, like, draw, like drawing it and drawing their affections. Like this pursuit. Like that's who, that's who God is in all of his commands. He's wooing us into his good and perfect design. And so we see that. So let's pick it up in verse, verse 1, Exodus 32. I think, I think uh, we got this on the screen as well. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Okay, so Moses is up on the mountain in, in, with God, which must be a pretty incredible encounter, um, what that would be like. Uh, and so the people are down at the base of the mountain. And here in this story, they become impatient. They become impatient because what they're doing is, they're like, where's Moses? He's been gone forever, our leader. And I think one of the fundamental places where idolatry can play in is where our means to getting to God is through another human being and not through Jesus, right? That our means to, like, they're waiting for Moses, and in the meantime, like, Moses isn't around, so they're like, they're beginning to doubt, you know, this, this leader, they're beginning to doubt who God is, and so they're like, go, and we, we need a God who's going to save us. Did they just forget that they were just saved from 400 years of slavery? And yet here in this moment, they're like, we're not satisfied. We need something else. And so Aaron begins to be an awful, awful leader. Look at verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. And fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they begin to structure their lives and their, their affection and their worship around this, this carved image that Aaron, one of their leaders, actually enabled them to do. Think about that. As people, as God's people, where in our lives are we enabling our own false worship but even more so, the false worship of others around us. That we're being a means to enabling people to set their affections on something other than Christ as primary. Keep reading. Look what happens. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside Quickly, out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and they've worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, I want to paint this picture in Exodus 32 because in a second we're going to really begin to define idolatry and what is idolatry. Because like none of us are carving images and idols and... But we have things in our lives that we worship and we set our affections on, just like in this story. And listen, God sends Moses as a missionary to the people of Israel to call them back to God. In the same way that he sends you and I as missionaries into each other's lives with the mission and the message of God to call us back to set our affections on who Jesus is into our context, into our community, into our world. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Okay, now, stiff-necked. 
You ever had like, you ever had that moment where, you know, the stiff neck, like you get this kink in your neck and you can't really turn your head. And so you like, you're turning your whole body. And so one of the illustrations here, um, growing up, at least I was taught regarding prayer that what do you do? You fold your hands and you bow your head and you close your eyes. Why? Why? Well, because bowing your head is a picture and a practice that's to illustrate the opposite of what God's calling out these, these individuals for. A stiff-necked people. So, so this word, stiff-necked, here's, here's kind of what it's denoting. Here's what it's thinking about. Really, these people are unwilling to worship God. They're unwilling to bow their head in worship to the one true God. That's what, that's what, we're, that's what I was taught as a kid. In bowing my head is a picture of, of worshiping the one true God. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be unwilling to bow your head and set your affections on the one who's worthy of it. So it's a picture of humility. It's a picture of his worth and his honor. But, uh, but it's like to be stiff-necked is to be obstinate, to be stubborn and rebellious to authority and to, to have no change in behavior. That's what God's saying about Israel here. And he says, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Like that, like that amazes me. Like what it says there, in order that I may make a great nation. Like God is, God is infuriated because his heart and his desire is so much greater than the heart and desire of the people. He's like, I want to do great things in you. I want to do great things through you, but you're, you're, you're stiff-necked, and you don't realize that I'm a good and loving God. You don't realize that I'm a good and loving Father, and my commands are me wooing you into my presence and into what will bring you the most satisfaction and the most joy. And it amazes me how that grieves the heart of God. And then verse 11 it says, but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with, with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. So like Moses is praying talking to God, and he's begging him to have mercy on his people. He's reminding him. He's reminding God, so to speak. He's like, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, and all this land that I've promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented. Isn't that amazing? Like, he heard the prayer of Moses and he showed mercy. And we say prayer doesn't work. He relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on them. And Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of testimony in his hand Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back. 
They were written, the tablets were the work of God, and the writings was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, is it not the sound of shouting for victory for the sound of the cur- um, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came down near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets. I mean, these are tablets that were written with the hand of God. And he threw them. You ever have moments where you burst, like you break something? I'll save a story. If you want to know a story where I punch a hole in the wall, I'll tell you later. And come ask me later. I missed the stud by two inches. The mercy of God. Um, anyway. And as soon as he came down near the camp, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets of, out of his hand and broke them in the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they'd made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Wow, that would be gross. But think about this. Moses had his heart aligned with God. Where, where when you go to God, when you spend time with God, like you begin to see how God's heart is fashioned for Areas of in our lives where we don't worship him. Because here's what happens. The tendency as people is that we leave God in the mountain. God's in the sky. God's this abstract um, deity, distant deity. And we can know him as that. And where idolatry reigns in our lives, what happens is God's in the sky and God's distant. And Moses is actually being a missionary to bring the message of the gospel down from the mountain to the people so that the gospel would actually trickle down from this distant reality to a personal reality where God begins to trickle into every area of our lives and show where our affections are not set on him. And he uses Moses to bring them back to that, to call them back to that Man, so I would just, I'll just put that out to us. Where in your life do you see God as distant and you leave him on the mountain, so to speak, and you don't allow who he is to begin to trickle down into every area of your life? That's what God wants. That's what God wants for you. That's what God wants. That's, that's relationship. God wants to take our desires and our affections and show us how he made them work. And who he wants us to be. Here in a second, we'll see that really clear when we look at Romans 1. So let me just put this out. Are you, are you grieved by idolatry? I, th- I think that's one of the truest marks of a child of God. Is that where your life, where, where you realize that your life doesn't align with who God wants you to be. There's a sense where you're, you're broken over it. Like I once had somebody come to me just, just weeping over their sin. And I looked him in the eye and I said, you know what? Like, you're going to be fine. You know why? Because you're so broken over it. 
but it's where we're not broken and where we're just okay with being indifferent. And we're just okay with the fact that really our heart isn't, our affections aren't set on who God is and we're just kind of doing our own thing. It's vastly different. Where, where are you grieved in your own heart by areas of your life where you're just like, man, I just, I just know that like, this area doesn't honor the Lord and I, I, I want to see change, but, but I'm struggling to change. Right? Like, I, I want to see something happen. I, wanna, I, I know I need to do something here, but I can't quite do it. And there's grief and there's brokenness and there's a fight. That's what Moses is doing. That's what the story is. There's a fight for God to reign in our hearts. It's when the fight stops. that idolatry truly begins to reign. Because Moses calls the people to repent. And pretty, pretty boldly by making him actually drink the very thing that they were worshiping. But he calls them to repent. Um, let's do this. Uh, let me throw this question up. What is What is worship? Let's think about this. How would you define worship? Any thoughts? Just shout them out. How, what is worship? Praise? What is worship? What do you think? Wow, what was that? You, did you know this question was coming? The occupation? Of a heart with a known God. The of a heart with a known God. Wow. That's really good. Now no one's going to answer because they're, they're like, I mean. <laughs> right. That's what I was going to say. That's what everyone was going to say. That's it. That's what everyone was going to say. Um, let me answer it with a question. You hate when teachers ask answer a question with a question, right? Here's the question. What controls you? What is it that controls you? What is it that controls my life? Because we all are worshipers. So we've got to be really careful because so much of the, in, in the church, we've been taught that like this is worship, like right here, right? And that this guy right here is like the worship pastor and like this is worship no worship is is a lifestyle and every one of us are worshipers of something or someone okay where there's a god that's that's reigning in our hearts all of us and all of us there's areas of our life where our affections are set on Christ and there's areas of our life where our affections aren't set on Christ. I won't say all of us. Many of us, I don't know everyone in the room, many of us that's true. There's areas of our lives where our affections are set and there's areas where there's not because worship is what controls you. So let me tell you some what's something that controls me. I'm a perfectionist. Many of you probably know this about me like I, I, I want things to be perfect, and when they're not, I struggle, which is why I just have a hard time all the time. Actually, I like to put it that I'm a recovering perfectionist because God's done massive things in my life 
through many of you to teach me just what it looks like to just let go and trust in God. But I'm a perfectionist, and so part of where I struggle is I struggle with the process of, of change and the process of growth. Because, like, growing up, the message that I got was that it's, it's not okay to not be okay. You just need to be okay. And I don't know what you need to do to become okay. You just need to become okay because not being okay is not okay. You follow that? <laughs> okay, and so learning to trust God in the process of growth and in the process of transformation, in the process of change, and here's why setting a gospel foundation is so crucial. Because I have the righteousness of Christ. So the truth of the matter is, I could not be more perfect. Because when God looks at me, he sees Jesus Christ. And my fight every day is to live out of that acceptance. Because I believe the lie that I'm just not good enough. I'll never be good enough. And it controls me, and it dominates me, and it owns me all the time. And I set my affections on having control and having things go perfectly. And where I, want, where I want things to look, how I want things to go, how I want my kids to act, how I want my marriage to look. And where it isn't that, I lose control because I'm out of control. You see how that can begin to own our lives? Thank God I have an amazing wife who calls me on it all the time. It reminds me of my acceptance in Christ. Listen, every single one of us has areas of our lives where our affections are misguided. And growing up in Christ is actually growing up into how he designed us to live and who he designed us to be. And listen, every one of us in this room, we're all on that trajectory. So I don't care if you've gone to church your entire life. Or if you're new to the scene, or if you're new to the Bible, like I don't care. Every single one of us is on a trajectory of, of coming to know the truthfulness of God and coming to set our affections on who God is. It's just maybe there's some of us in here that have accepted the, perf- the perfect righteousness of Christ that's offered to us, and some of us haven't. Okay? So all of us are worshipers. Um, I love uh, what, what Tim Keller says, kind of helping us out here. He says, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. The question is this, who's your Lord? What areas of your life is Jesus your Lord and what areas of your life is he not? Because all of us have them. All of us have areas of our life where Jesus isn't our Lord. Right? Look, let's just be honest, right? That's what I was just describing. We all have those areas. Um, I'll, I'll share this story as an illustration. Um, we're in the process of, of adopting Danny and Amelia. Um, and so one of the things that controls Danny is, uh, is deception. So, so being losing his mom and and um, being coming into our family, he he doesn't know who to trust, right? And so, for the past year, we've been trying to tell him, "Hey, you can trust us. You can trust this family." And you guys have done an amazing job of just helping us teach him that and love on him. Um, 
But, but he's, very de- he's very deceptive, and he's very sneaky, but he's horrible at being sneaky. If you've ever watched him be sneaky, he's, he's horrible at it. But, um, but he tries. Like, give him some credit. He tries to be sneaky, and he, um, and he loves to hide, and he loves to lie. And one of my desires, I'm not always good at it, because most of the time I just want to, like, throw down the law and be like, this, you don't do this in my home, and you're not going to bring this to my family, and I'm... Not a good dad in that, but where the Lord's pushing me to be and who I need to be is I, is I want to teach him that he's safe. Right? Like, why do we lie and hide things? Because we don't, we don't believe that we're safe. We don't believe that God has the best interest in mind. Right? And so, so Danny doesn't fully believe and trust that, like, I'm for him. He has a really hard time with Danielle because most of the time he doesn't know if he's going to be hurt by her the same way he was hurt by his mom and losing his mom. And so I want to be a dad that says, listen, buddy, you don't have to hide. Like you need something, come, let's talk. You don't have to lie. Like, come, let's deal with this. Let's talk about this. You're safe. You're loved. You're accepted. You don't have to Hide. It controls you. He clings to that because he thinks that's where power is. Keller just reminded us that, that that's actually the loss of power. It's actually the loss of control. It's seeking control through idols. In another quote, Keller says this, an idol is paradoxically a spiritually dangerous power that saps you of all power. He says, this is a triple paradox. Idols are powerless things that are all about getting power. The more you seek power through them, however, the more they drain you of strength. Idols bring about terrible spiritual blindness of heart and mind, and the, idolaters, the idolater is self-deluded through a web of lies. Also, idols bring about slavery. Jeremiah likens our relationship to idols as a love-addicted person to his or her lover Idols poison the heart into complete dependence on them. They completely capture our hearts. Listen, this is, this is what happened in Genesis 3 in the fall. Right? God called Adam and Eve to set their, his, their affections on the Creator. They believed the lie of the enemy. Their affections were distorted. And they begin to set their affections on themselves and the created thing rather than the Creator. Okay, so go to Romans 1. Because we're going to see this unpacked pretty explicitly. Romans chapter 1. Um, it's to the right of the Gospels in your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Let's pick it up at verse 18. Because part of what I want us to see is how actually... The, the affection for God actually becomes distorted and becomes perverted. Because that's what we're going to see here is, is prefer, pervert, uh, affections perverted in Romans 1. And how to deal with that in our own hearts, but also how to deal with that as we live as missionaries in the culture that are trying to bring Jesus to bear and to turn, to turn people's affections to Christ and from idols. So Romans 1.18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, so suppress, the word suppress literally means to imprison. 
Okay? That through sin, we imprison the truth of who God is, and we live a lie. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Here's what it's saying. It's saying God is everywhere. Like, look around. You want to argue for who God is? Like, look around. Does God exist? Look around. And the biggest thing we look at that argues for who God is and the reality of God is one another, is people. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Hear hear the distortion. Even think of Adam and Eve. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't give him the the worth that he was worthy of. That's worship. That's that's a a false worship, a distortion of God's intent that everything in life would bubble up to know God and be a means to make much of God. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You know what's true as I read that? It just hit me is the majority of people in the world have the desire to do well with their life, right? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So no one's like, I'm going to go out and ruin my life. Now, some people might do that. But the majority of people are like, in their pursuits, they believe they're walking in wisdom. In my pursuit of idolatry, in my pursuit of pursuing control, I believe at times, hey, this is what's best. This is what will be helpful for me. This is what will be healthy for me. I think it's wisdom. Paul says, it's it's foolishness, it's folly. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and, and they exchanged, the worst exchange ever, they exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So this summer, my family's going to Florida. Um, we'll be there about a week with my in-laws and Danielle's whole family. Um, and uh, it's going to be a phenomenal time. We're super excited about it. But, but imagine if we decided to stay in our living room and we just decided to put up a whole bunch of pictures of the, of the beach in Florida and, and bring our kids in the room and say, hey guys, for the next week, we're just going to hang out here in the living room and we're just going to look at the images that are around us of how amazing Florida could be. That's nonsense, right? That's not like, so, but, but the text here describes an exchange of reality, of true worship for images. For the false nature. It's the distortion of worship. It's the distortion, the perversion of our affections. They exchange the glory of God for images resembling mortal man. Now check this out, verse 24. It says, therefore God gave them up. Okay, three times in this text, that passage, those words are used. God gave them up. Verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. He gave them up. God doesn't force people to worship him. In fact, what he does is, oftentimes, is he'll, he'll, he'll let people go. 
to show them where affection actually really is. He, gave, he says he, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. And oftentimes when we think of lust, we think of what? Sexual, right? It's not, it's not just a sexual word. It includes that. But it's actually a, a false pursuit, a distortion Passionately desiring something that God never intended to bring us ultimate satisfaction from. It's perverting God's good design. It's like, I must have this. So that's what it's saying. It, the lust of their hearts, he gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So he's saying we, we worship the things that are around us, and we make them the end-all goal of our affections rather than seeing them bubble up in worship. So sex becomes pornography and lust and rape and homosexuality. Possessions become materialism and greed and the pursuit of money to satisfy us. Okay, God's good design in, in um, drink and in food perverted, become gluttony, and become alcoholism, relationships and people as a means to, to know God and make him known, become a means to serve ourselves and to further our agenda. And so we surround ourselves with people that we're comfortable with, that, that we like, that like us, because they further our call. You see how they see the distortion of affection here? That's what he's saying. That's what he's talking about. And here's what worship is. It's setting your affection on something to the extent that your life rises and falls on how that thing plays out. Look at verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, now, one of the errors, I think, in this text is that people say this text is primarily about homosexuality. No, it's, it's using homosexuality as an example of the distortion of affection of God's good design. It's using it as an example because it continues on. It says, and since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, what does he do? He gives them up. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just can't even imagine that. I can't imagine some of you who've who've been parents and, and have adult children and you've seen kids just kind of like go and do whatever. And you just, there comes a point you just have to like go. Like, I can't do anything else to change your heart. I, still, I can't imagine what that's like. And that's, that's what God's doing. He's like, go. Like, you want to, go. And you're going to see it's, it's not where it's at. It's not where joy is found. He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. That's an impressive one. Um, disobedience of parents. Wow, that's pretty simple, right? Like, it's listing all of these things. And one of the things I love about the picture of the disobedience of parents is because that's, when we run in false worship, what we're doing is we're saying, Father, I don't trust you. 
I don't believe that you have my best interest in mind. I don't believe that, that coming to you is where joy and satisfaction is found. I don't trust you. So I just, my, my affections are distorted. I'm disobedient to my Heavenly Father. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. C.S. Lewis says, The lost enjoy forever horrible freedom they've demanded and therefore are self-enslaved. The lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they've demanded and therefore are self-enslaved. And just like Moses coming down from the mountain to confront the Israelites for their false worship, that's who God is to us. That's who the Holy Spirit is to us. That through the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes down to convict, to show us where in our lives we're setting our affection on things that are broken and are frail and will not satisfy in God's call. Even this morning, God's calling us back. Listen. How easy is it for us to read this passage and think about others? Right? I mean, you, like, you read this passage and you're like, gosh, that stuff is terrible. We got to go out there and change the world and get people to stop doing this. Your assignment for this week is to read Romans 2. Because Romans 2 says, be careful you who judge these people because you do the very same things. We've got to be careful as the church who has this judgmental view of the world that this is where the answer is and just getting in here and this, like, gosh, we're broken people that have distorted affections who are trying our best under the mercy of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit to see our affections aligned to Jesus Christ and all that he's done in us. And that's what it is to be the church. If you're wondering what it is to be the church, to be a people that live out the grace of God as he works it in our hearts. So here's the message this morning as we prepare to respond. God's worthy of worship. Where, where in your life does your, li- does your life not send that message? God, you're worthy. Where in your life is God up on the mountain and you're not allowing him to trickle down into every area of your life? to everything that you do, into every area of who you are? Where in your life is your affections been perverted? And God wants to call you back to who he is. Where in your life are you worshiping a person, a possession, a plan, or a dream, a desire? Instead of running to Christ and letting him be all in all, in and through those around you and the things in your life. That's our call this morning is to repent. Romans 2 says, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance and that in repentance is where God changes hearts. Listen, do you know you can't change someone's affections? Like we can beat on a table till we're 
blue in the face and say, don't do this stuff. That's not what God wants. Only God can change our affections. So here's the truth. Where your affections aren't in line with what we've talked about this morning, which is true for all of us, our only hope is to run to God and say, God, change my affections. And here's the crazy thing, is that he's good and loving, and he sends us his Holy Spirit to journey us through the process of becoming in practice who we already are in the eyes of Jesus Christ, if you are a child of God in the room. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. It's incredible. It's seeing all of life as worship, and that everything in our life we do as Unto the Lord. Everything. Not just Sunday. Not just a community group. Everything. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the truthfulness that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. God, would you in your kindness bring a transformation of our distorted affections? God, it's not through my words. It's not through my words to those here. It's not through my words to even my own heart. But Papa, it's through your love and through your grace and through your transformation and through your Holy Spirit that our affections are changed. And so God, all of us have areas of our lives where we set our affections on things that we believe will satisfy us and we don't set our affections on who you are. And God, I stand here in this moment, I say you're worthy. And God, I want every area of my life to be pleasing to you. God, would you help us Or maybe there's some in the room that are at a place of indifference and a place where they just kind of don't care. God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'd come and you'd bring conviction and you bring a change of affection. That you would become their worship. God, I pray for those in the room that, that are at the end of themselves and they want so desperately in areas of their life to worship and know you. They want so desperately their life to be a pleasing aroma, sacrifice, a joy to their heavenly Father. I pray, God, as we respond, that you would remind them that in you, they're perfect. They're not defined by what they do. They're defined by what Christ has done. So God, would you meet us? Would you change our affections as we respond to you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.